Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Kerrang's Inside Track, where the world's biggest artists tell the stories behind the most influential moments in rock history. That intro, are you ready? Just like, I don't know, it just I came out. A lot of great art, I don't think people think about it. It's just something that's divine that happens. The word inspire means with spirit, and I think I was with spirit that time. That was Jonathan Davis, looking back on writing the intro for Korn's self-titled 1994 album that influenced an entire generation of heavy music. Obviously, that was not an easy feat. 1994 was a huge landmark year for rock. It was the year that Kurt Cobain passed away, signaling the end of the grunge movement that had become bloated and hijacked by mainstream culture. Green Day and The Offspring released Dookie and Smash, respectively, which kickstarted a wave of poppy, upbeat punk rock that took over the airwaves instantly. That same year, Weezer released their debut, Nine Inch Nails unleashed their landmark album The Downward Spiral, and Texan heavyweights Pantera hit number one on the Billboard charts with their third album, Far Beyond Driven. Over in California at that same time, a new sound was born when a group of musicians from Bakersfield recorded a debut album that combined the abrasiveness of metal, the grooves and rhythms of hip-hop, and a lyrical openness and vulnerability that had never before been heard in heavy music. That band was Korn. Korn's story actually begins back in 1993. Guitarist James Monkey Schaefer, bassist Reggie Arvizu, known to his friends as Fieldy, and drummer David Silveria had just moved to Huntington Beach, California, about an hour outside of L.A., They'd parted ways with the singer of their funk metal band, LAPD, and were trying to figure out what to do next. Their good friend Brian Head Welch, who had also moved to Huntington Beach from Bakersfield, had decided to join the band on second guitar. The four of them, along with their friend Ross Robinson, who was a young producer at the time, went looking for a new singer and remembered a guy by the name of Jonathan Davis, whom they had seen play with his band back in their hometown. When we spoke with Jonathan in person, he recalled the phone call that changed his life. Uh, when I joined the band, it was it was different. It was weird. I got asked by one of the band's friends. What, what happened is I was playing in another band called Sex Art, and James, Monkey, and Head were in the bar just visiting their, their buddy Andy, who was the drummer in this band that was playing after us. And they were just happened to be in a bar, and they heard us sing, and they had lost the singer. And they I met them, and they had went back to Huntington Beach where they lived, and they lost their singer. He was really crazy, and he just quit the band and left. And he had Monkey go, what about that guy in Bakersfield we saw? So um, Monkey called his boy, and Andy called me and said, call these guys. And I called him and said, what's up? And I talked to Fieldy, I think, first. And me and Fieldy grew up together. I mean, his dad and my dad played in bands, in local bands back in the 70s together. So I remember Reggie, he was a punk. and would come into my dad's music store and, and tell me to give him Marshall T-shirts, like Marshall cabinet T-shirts and stuff. So he called me up and asked what I was into, and... uh asked me to come try out, and I, so I, I tried out. And their style at the time was like this crazy, funky, but heavy style, but they had a singer that sounded like Lane Stanley. 
So it sounded like Alice in Chains. So when he left, I came in and I did my thing over it. I came in and walked in and they had four songs. And the first song I sang and I got in the band was Alive. And the second one was Predictable. I had Predictable was done. I had that ready. That's what I tried out with. And then we did another one Alive and I sang out some words and sang some stuff. And then eventually those two were on the, the demo that we did. But I got in the band. I came in, I sang, and they're like, you're in the band. And I moved from Huntington. I get, I quit all my stuff. I was a I was going to be a mortician. I had a whole career. So I gave all that up, and I moved to Huntington and lived in literally... At first, I had a room, but then I actually started living underneath some stairs. I didn't have any money. I didn't know what to do. I barely had enough to pay the rent for underneath the stairs. I did all that, and we just started playing gigs, and that's how the whole thing started. Head also recalled what it was like hearing Jonathan sing for that first time. When I heard Jonathan's vocals for the first time and he joined our band, I was like, this guy... Because I've, I've been in a band with singers, and you either have something special or or you're mediocre, you know? Or you're horrible, but I've never had a horrible singer, just mediocre. And so you're like, they're good. They sound a little bit like Lane, and they're in key, but it's like when you hear Jonathan's tone, that gr- that I call it the heavy voice, like... Um, like I'm blind. I'm so blind. And he's got that growl. And I was like, that's a unique growl. If I heard that, his voice on the radio, I'd be like, okay, that's, that's, that's him. He sounds like him and it's unique. And so I didn't think it would be huge, but I was like, I think we could do something like maybe big underground or something. Ross Robinson, who spoke with us on the phone from his house in LA was also at Jonathan's first audition. We had a uh, vocal auditions you know, and um, Brian and I can't remember who the other, it was two guys from the band saw Jonathan in uh, sex art. And, you know, John had just trying out, you know, he was just starting messing around with, with uh, vocals or whatever. And, but anyway, he came with the demo, so he was prepared and all that. And he's the only guy that it was like the first audition, like, all right, we're going to try this guy out. And and I remember John just fucking flipping out, going wild during this song, just tripping out, his body convulsing. He looked like, uh, like he had like no dreads. He was like this kind of weird, like dry hair or something. <laughs> it was like strange, but he had this Robert Smith makeup on. And I was like, oh, my God. Because The Cure is my favorite band of all time. And I was thinking, oh, it, this is like, he's he's goth. This is going to be cool. It's dark. It'll get rid of the, like, this, like, there's, like, kind of a happy funk thing going on with the band at the time a little bit. And then this heavy thing. And it was a good contrast. But um, so anyway, uh, you couldn't hear John sing. And he was, you could just hear a little bit. But the chills all over the body, you know, like it was just like, fuck, you know, and, and he was ended up on the ground, like almost sobbing. And, and we were like, that's it. <laughs> With Jonathan in the band, the five piece began rehearsing at Underground Chicken Sound, a studio run by Jeff Kreeth, a man who eventually became their manager. He also had a pretty bizarre nickname that inspired a song on their first record. Well, Underground Chicken Sound was this place we rented in Huntington Beach. And it, we rented from this guy, Jeff, who we called Baltung. <laughs> and that was because at the time, you know, everybody was so whacked out on methamphetamines, it's doing speed. He'd laugh, he'd seize up and go, oh, and we called him Baltung, was his nickname. But that was his studio. 
and we just started recording or not recording but rehearsing out of there and then we kind of our became our home base and he had a screen printing business in there and that's when we started pulling corn stickers and printing corn shirts and we'd throw shows these underground shows in this rehearsal studio to pay for rent for him and sell shirts and that's like how we built this grassroots following head also has fond memories of the studio underground chicken sound was amazing studio man we We've been in some studios before, and you got rehearsal studios. It's just like carpet with like all this mildewed beer stains and Dorito pieces everywhere, and you know, and the, the walls are just nothing, and it's just it's like a garage basically. We go into Underground Chicken Sound, and there's like this chicken wire set up over the place. It's like high 20, 25 foot ceilings, and there's like a loft. There's couches over on one side. There's all this mood lighting, like black lights everywhere. And we walked in and we were, there's a front office. And we walked in and we were just like, what the hell? This is the coolest rehearsal space ever. And um, it just had a vibe, you know? And, and then they had a back room where they were doing whatever, like printing shirts and everything. And so we, got, we, we, met, this, we met the guys. We went in there and we said, hey, we, we want to rehearse here for sure and we set up and they're like who's these guys are walking in with like baggy pants and and uh, dreadlocks and these guys were like kind of what is maybe like played southern rock or what maybe not maybe a little like stp maybe the grunge thing a little bit more but a little bit more acoustic and they were just like kind of like the old school you know and we walk in with this new look we're like hip-hop fans or we're spiky hair um goth looking whatever all mixture of things. That's what corn. That's I think another reason why fans, because we were a mixture of everything. We were, it was like goth, but like hip hop, but like metal. And so these guys were like, "What? Are, what are these guys? I wonder what they're gonna sound like." And we plugged in, and the lowness of our bass and everything. They were just like their jaws dropped. They're like, "Oh my gosh, I've never heard any band sound like this." And it wasn't like we were the best band ever. It was just like really intense. And then Jonathan's like, "Oh." And so the dude that owned owned it or ran it, he's like, man, he goes, I want to help you guys. And then he's he with the back room, he had the printing, the stickers and everything. And he made shirts. And so he made his corn shirts and stickers. And we plastered the whole town, HB, everywhere. So people were like driving and they're like, what's corn? K-O-R-N, what is that? And so the word got out there. And then next thing you know, we put flyers up, corn. You know, and so a uh, free concert or whatever, or five bucks for a keg or something like that. And we still, it's just, people were just like, what the hell is this? This band is weird and crazy, but like, you can't look away, even if you don't like it. That guy uh, that was running Chicken Sound, he actually rented a bus for us. We got a keg and we marketed to those same people. Hey, give us 10 bucks. You can ride on the bus drink beer on the way to L.A., watch corn play, and then get a ride home. And everyone's safe, no drunk drivers. And so we packed out the L.A. clubs, and it helped us get signed. Despite their increasingly devoted following, like most up-and-coming bands, corn were still short on cash. So when it came time to record a demo, Ross, who, funnily enough, was actually working on an album with the glam band Wasp at the time, offered to sneak the band into the studio late at night and use Wasp's setup to avoid paying for studio time. Niedermeyer's Mind, the demo they cut together at the time, contains early versions of the songs Blind, Daddy, and Need To. Fun fact, in the liner notes of the demo, Korn actually thanks Wasp. Armed with a handful of songs and a growing buzz in their home state, 
Korn began attracting the attention of record labels. Eventually, they got signed by Immortal, a subsidiary of Epic Records. When it came time to select a producer to record their debut album, the choice was easy. It had to be their old friend Ross Robinson. They chose him for a couple of reasons. One, because he fully understood their music and believed in what they were doing. And two, because as the son of a famous self-help guru, Ross was like therapist in the studio, helping them exercise their demons through their art. Nobody, I don't think, understood them the way I did. The production, I think, um, I knew for it to last forever and be timeless forever and not be stuck in a... And this is 1993, you know, um, to record everything super, super raw and super natural. All tape, all like 70s, everything 70s. Those are, that's what I knew. Um, I still love to listen to and I will always listen to it. I still do to this day. Um, so that wisdom was put into play. So um, they don't have a, you know, an album that's stuck in that time period, you know, it's, it's timeless. It, it'll stand up for a hundred years from now because of that, I think. And, um, maybe a different producer would have taken it into a different kind of obvious way. More than anything, Korn appreciated Ross's broad, unconventional approach to music. 25 years later, when you hear the record, the sense of mutual admiration is still present. Here's Head speaking more on that. He had this like metal thing that he he loved, but he also loved the cure. And so he was just like what the cure really moved him melody wise. And so he would influence us to do like pretty cool guitar lines that had melody or creepiness or whatever. So I learned that from him, actually. We really pulled that pain out of Jonathan. And it was pure in in a pure way, like when we first started during that first record and the second record. It really was meant to be, and it worked. And he, and he kind of like helped him get therapy through his music while recording. And you could, that's how you can feel all that gut-wrenching um, emotion coming from him. Here's Jonathan talking to us about the sonic impact that Ross had on the album. I think he helped capture what we were trying to do. I mean, he took and we, we tuned down to A. We took it down a full step. I mean, that's what Steve Vai pretty much, he didn't invent the seven-string guitar. The seven-string guitar has been around for years. It's a jazz instrument. It was made so you could do really low and high, like solo kind of things. You could go really low, but most people used it just for soloing and stuff. So, And that's what Steve Vai did, but like he took it and made it his own. And uh, by doing that, we tuned it, we dropped it down a whole step, and Ross was responsible for that. And then just painting, like, with colors and all these crazy pedals that he had up with Richard's place at Indigo Ranch. He had all this analog equipment and all these crazy pedals. So he was really intricate with James and Head, um, just coming up with sounds and different things for the guitar. He was like the ringleader for us. If you put us in a room and tell us to write, whatever, we just don't, <laughs> we need someone to, 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 to be a cheerleader and lead the way. So at that time, and uh, he was really integral in doing that. When the band began to get popular, suddenly there were a lot of people around who wanted something from them. Ross decided to sit back and wait out the chaos. There were a lot of people around the band that were um, very needy, you know, like, uh, you know, the, there, were, there were people involved um, and it became uh, hard for them. And what I did is, you know, I, I showed... 
I showed my dedication and my love. I was always at every single rehearsal. We we did all, you know, we worked through songs together, everything from hi-hats to beats to, you know, arrangements together, everything. And, um, and incredible amounts of fr- huge friendship and, you know, loyalty and all of that. But what I did is I took a mega step back and let them be and not be one of those people that were needy around them. And I I basically surrendered it and gave it away and let it go and and uh, disappeared, you know, during that crazy time because it's insane and i you know i i didn't hear from them and it was it was uh really um uh, i could have been like dramatic and like why aren't they blah 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 but i did my work you know i did my internal uh cleaning and you know just dug in you know and woke up on a high level, like really woke up on a internal, um, deep spiritual level, I would imagine. And, and I feel that, uh, that letting go and that surrender and giving it away, the, you know, the Dave Jordan who just did Alice in Chains was at their shows and <laughs> it was just like, okay. And, and I just left. And um, they called me up and and I, we hung out and they wanted me to do it. They gave me the chance and, um, and stuck by me. And uh, I had a paragraph signed, you know, a little pretend contract. And, and basically they stuck to the agreement and... Um, it wasn't like I was going to sue him for anything or whatever, but um, I, I just gave it away, let it go, and it all came back, all of it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ross and Korn began working in a studio in Malibu, California. They recorded everything live to tape, capturing everything between the songs, even the fighting, laughter, and banter between the band members. 
While recording, Ross quickly discovered that David's drumming naturally followed the rhythm of Jonathan's vocals instead of keeping a consistent beat throughout the songs. Meanwhile, Fieldy had this incredibly low, clicky bass tone, which to this day is central to Korn's sound, and together there was this natural drama of letting the rhythm go where the song took it. These days in the studio, music is often processed and pro-tooled within an inch of its life. Each instrument is isolated and recorded separately, and tracks are pieced together with software that keeps everything neat, tidy, and consistent. Rejecting this approach, Ross opted to record everything live and capture the natural feel of the way that Korn played. If you put it on like a computer with the lines, how everybody records today, everything is totally perfect. And they take that swagger and the, the, the swing away from the, the drama of, of where the music is leading vocally. And, you know, so um, when we were doing bass overdubs, it was just like, holy shit, these drums are fucked up. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, I know for for a fact that throughout this whole performance, I got chills in my body and that it's correct because my intuition during that performance said it was okay. So let's just follow it and just fucking do your very best and let's get it. And And we would, you know, go into the slowdowns and then the speed ups. And it's like, oh, God. And, and I remember so many times we think, oh, fucking David. But it, David saved the record in that he was listening to the vocal. And, you know, it was an accidental discovery on on our part. Like, oh, my God, this isn't bad. It's genius. And And so the album breathes. It breathes. It has like this completely separate life to it that nobody will ever be able to reproduce ever not even them it's impossible the decision to record everything live was incredibly effective in capturing the personality of the band but it also made a few moments of the process pretty difficult one of those was the intro to shoots and ladders where jonathan plays bagpipes that only gradually fade in head recalls the recording process when jonathan recorded the bagpipes he was way up the driveway and ross had a a microphone near the front porch. And you can hear the bagpipes away from far distance and him walking. It's really cool. And you can hear the birds. Those are those are all the Malibu birds. And then when we time to do shoots and ladders, I started at the top of Indigo. There was a mountain, you come down this thing. So we set up microphones outside. And I go, someone goes, go. And so I started walking down. I played the bagpipes finished off. I had to set them down and run into the fucking studio while the band was playing, get in there, get my headphones on and come in right on time. So we had to do it a couple times, but shit was sick. Then we did that all live. Because of the band's tight relationship with Ross, they were comfortable opening up about their emotions throughout the recording process. This was especially important when it came time to record Daddy, the last track on the record, an explicit, emotionally raw and disturbing song about the sexual abuse that Jonathan experienced as a child. While recording the lyrics and recounting his horrific experiences, Jonathan broke down sobbing in the vocal booth. Ross made the decision to keep the tape rolling, and his very real breakdown is captured in the recording of the song. Here's Ross talking about that moment. It's like, all right, we're going to do it. And we had a day dedicated to it, and everything was ready. Everything was, I think it was probably the last song we recorded with everybody together. And... I, I went to the vocal booth and I, and I said to John, I looked at him in the eye, I think I held his arms and looked at him, I go, you know what to do. And he goes, yeah. And then record. 
and um, where the tape was on the tape machine, we had a lot of tape, but uh, when you hear the creak at the end of the song, the actual tape rolled off the reel and ran out. So the very end of the song is a, is a delay of the tape rolling off the machine. So it was perfect, perfect amount of time and space for that. And the song wasn't that long. That was all uh, improv through the end of the song. I remember when Jonathan uh, broke down on Daddy and we were just playing, because we were tracking with David the drummer and uh, when he broke down bawling, I actually thought he was just like getting into it and might have been, I don't know, I never heard him go that far with his emotions, but my mind wasn't letting me like believe that it was real, you know? And then when he kept crying, I'm like, they're like, it's real. Like what we're recording like this with a microphone, you know, I got headphones and they're like, because you can hear me laugh. I go, ha! like that. And they're like, I go, and then it was like, whoa, this is freaking heavy. And then the drummer kept playing and then we were doing these crazy sounds and he's just, (laughs) and it was like, what the hell? So that was the most intense recording experience I've ever had. And nothing's ever come close to that since. I didn't plan any of that. I just happened. Even like when they say at the end of the song, Daddy and I had, had that breakdown and all that stuff, I had no fucking idea that was going to happen. It just happened and he kept the tape rolling. I thought, it was done. I thought we was all done and everybody was like, but he just kept it recorded. Though the song was called Daddy, Jonathan has maintained from the beginning that it wasn't about his father. In a later interview with Kerrang, he told us that at the time, his parents failed to believe that their son may have been abused. He said, when I was a kid, I was being abused by somebody else and I went to my parents and told them about it and they thought I was lying and joking around. They never did shit about it. They didn't believe it was happening to their son. Due to its intensely personal nature and how painful it is to relive that trauma every time it's performed, the song had never been played live until Korn's 20th anniversary tour in 2015. After those shows, the band released a video where Jonathan revealed that the person who had molested him as a child was his female babysitter. Uh, it's horrible. It's like you're, you're like facing your vulnerability. You're facing something that hurts you your entire life. And when you hear it back, I can't even listen to it to this day. And I promised myself when we did the 20-year anniversary, we did those 20 shows. I did that, and I will never do it again. I said I never was going to do it in the first place, but I'm like, for the, for the anniversary, I owe it to myself to face it. And then, you know, for the fans, the ones that lucky enough got to see the shows. With such disturbing lyrical themes, the band required fitting artwork to match. The image that graces the cover depicts a little girl on a swing, shielding her face from the sun as the silhouette of a man approaches, holding what could either be horseshoes or knives. The way that the logo is placed also makes the girl look like she's being hanged by a noose. The duality of possible innocence and corruption in childhood set the tone for Korn's visual aesthetic and many album covers to come. What's especially remarkable about Korn's debut is Jonathan's extreme vulnerability and his decision to open up honestly about his darkest, most intimate experiences, especially during a time when men were not encouraged to do so. Here's Roth with more on that. That first Korn record was the very first album to be vulnerable in heavy music. Vulnerable, like with a, a sweet, delicate, loving sensitive feminine vulnerability 
and extreme masculinity and but the goth thing and the just mega vulnerability and sensitivity that nobody else has ever done in the history of metal it just never happened and and i think that willingness and that courage um allowed everybody to go what what i mean what what was really different is that our singer got was really emotional and he would cry like he cried on a couple songs and yelled so loud you felt like his throat was ripping in two and um you could feel the pain in his lyrics you know it's being called a faggot or whatnot in that song faggot and he's just talking about being bullied. You can feel the pain of and the woundedness of the guy. And so a lot of people have been wounded in the world, you know, by parents, by peers, by bullies, by relationships, broken heart, everything. And so he's saying like in a way about that, that was not just lyrics, it was emotions were coming through his lyrics. And our producer Ross Robinson got that out of him a lot, which was really special, I think, for people. They, they, they knew it wasn't just fake. It was like, you could feel it. When it was done, I was like, what are these people going to think about this? But I had no idea what kind of worms it was going to open. When I got out there and people started connecting with it, and I went out there and some people start coming up and talking to me about, this music's helped me, thank God you did this song, or you talk about this. That really gave me strength. I felt like, oh, wow, that's not the only one. In turn, I think it was the same way. It was just both ways. Everybody walked away feeling better somehow. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know what it is, and that's just the beautiful thing about music. I've said it a million times, it has the power to bring people together, power to heal, power to do everything. It's Music knows no race or boundary or anything. It's just, it's not political, nothing. It's just something you listen to and it touches your soul. It's a very pure, magical art form. So who knows, but it, it helps. I don't know how, but it does. This message, combined with the ultra heaviness of the music, really resonated with people. After the album was released, it was impossible to ignore the cultural force that Korn was becoming. Here's Ross recalling the time the band realized they were becoming popular. I remember the first week the first record came out, um, I was talking to James on the phone and, and he's like, Oh my God, can you believe 200 kids bought our cassette? And they opened it. They opened the package and they they looked at like the artwork and then they pressed play on our CD or whatever the format was that they bought. But can you believe 200 people did that? I'm like, fuck, no way. (laughs) We're just like, oh my God, this is so cool. And that was like, the ultimate dreams come true right there. Like, it couldn't have been better. Not everybody understood us at first, but they saw the cult following, and they realized that we had something that the generation wanted. I was 24 years old. I was a baby. I had my whole life of just pent-up aggression and rage to just let out. I don't know what I was trying to get across. I just knew that I hurt, and I wanted to get it out. And that was it. And then all this happened. (laughs) 25 years later, Korn's debut album has sold over 2 million copies worldwide. It launched Ross Robinson's career, allowing him to work with bands like Deftones, Limp Bizkit, Sepultura, and Slipknot. 
The album is also responsible for birthing a whole new movement in heavy music, one that we now refer to as new metal. I think it was just fresh. The grunge movement was amazing. It was very dark and moody and brooding, and it, they had their thing, but what we were doing was kind of like, I don't know, just a balance. There's some extreme depressive shit that I was singing about, but the music so heavy and up there, you know, there was up-tempo stuff. It was like a balance. It just totally set you off either way. You could wild the fuck out and have a great time, or you could be really, you could hear it and, and it really touch your soul in a different kind of way. It had all these things going on in it. So it was just like the whole package, I think. I think around 1999 was when we started to realize we were inspiring a lot of music, uh, musicians around. Because that's when like the, the bands like uh, Incubus got signed and asked to go on tour with us. And there were these little kids, you know, that were so green. And then we'd go to Florida and this band, Limp Bizkit, were, here's our demos. Hey, thanks, kid. You suck, you know. And then we come back around, they're like, here's our demo. We're like, wow, you guys got better. And then we got them with Ross Robinson. And and so we we started realizing a little bit like early on as far as like 96, 97 with uh, Life is Peachy. And we started getting uh, MTV radio play. We started realizing it a bit then. But then when these bands got signed and then they're stained and all these bands, you know, they're, they're uh, it's just like all the... A lot of the bands that were coming out just singing about their pain and being wounded, you know, and, and you know, a lot of bands say that we influenced them, like Slipknot and Linkin Park, and, and but they took their thing further. But uh, early on, I think we, we saw that, that we were influencing people, but then probably 1998, 99, we realized how, how much, you know, when the K7s, the seven string guitars were flying off the shelves and everything and they were going to discontinue those so it was it was really cool i didn't understand how it was happening i'm just like wow the legacy left behind by corn's first record is immense they're just five guys from bakersfield california coping with some pretty dark demons but by revealing their pain they made people all over the world feel less isolated you're not alone if that's the main message is like you're not alone we are, we have been through sufferings with you. We've been through, you know, uh, bad uh, bullying or whatnot and broken heart, um, whatever it is, abuse, growing up, sexual or physical abuse, you know, it's anything like that. Jonathan was singing about and, and so pain, you're not alone in your pain. That's what I feel like the message was. And let's all scream it out together. And it was therapeutic, man. It really was. It's therapeutic for for mainly Jonathan. And all of us had, like, issues with dads growing up and everything. And, you know, suicidal thoughts and all this. And bullying. Most of us went through bullying, too, in the band, um, if not all. And, uh, and so we related. We just got it out, you know. And so the fans did too. We just had fun. We were living our dream. So, and that was the epitome of the dream to do that first record. It's like, oh my God, we're making a record for Sony Musical. This is insane. It's just like, yeah, that was like, you'll never capture that feeling again. I hear you. You know, it's, it's what it's saying is like, I fucking understand. I understand you. And, and that's like, oh, you're not on an island alone anymore. You know, you get to, you're held. You could put on that record and just be held, you know. And, and again, it's love. 
you feel love. And it's not, I'm a victim, it's, I'm taking me back. I'm awake now. You know, that, that's what I get out of it. And um, look how great I am. You know, I know what the fuck I am and it's power. This episode of Kerrang's Inside Track was narrated, written, and produced by me, Kat Jones. It was directed and executive produced by Ethan Fixell, with additional production by Sam Kaur and Phil Alexander, and additional direction by Chris Cravaton. It was edited and mixed by Kieran Kay at Full English Post in Brooklyn, New York. All music was written and composed by Ben Hutcherson, and our logo was designed by Jonathan Amaya. Special thanks to Misha Perlman, Michelle Kerr, and Ross Anderson. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Inside Track wherever you listen to your podcasts and visit kerrang.com for more information on corn. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.